everybody and welcome back to Beware the Artist. I am Jeremy Jersa and with us this week we have Dominic Chambers. Uh, Dominic, if you want to tell us who you are and what is it that you do? Hey Jeremy, um, thank you for having me. Um, so I'm from St. Louis, Missouri. That's where I was born and raised. My family's from Arkansas, but you know, proud Midwesterner over here. Um, I make large paintings and drawings and a lot of them, you know, deal with, you know, this literary theme called magical realism, which I'm quite fond of. But also, you know, I'm interested very much so in art history and just, you know, the act of painting. And so, I'm, you know, I make paintings. Nice, nice. So you, you started to hit on it a little bit um, in your little intro, but um, what themes are you really exploring in your work? So I will say there's a number of themes, you know, um, that kind of come in and out of the work at the forefront. I'm, you know, totally invested in this idea of magical realism, which is a um, literary form or genre that um, some of my favorite writers um, participate with. And I'm also just invested in, you know, African-American history, literature, you know, different dialogues, you know, our kind of cultural identity, collective identity as Americans, you know, as a capitalist country, what does that mean for us? And how do we reconcile the misunderstandings of, present within our own experiences, mm. which is kind of um, what kind of set me into like this direction to make images of um, black bodies not doing anything or making sure that I um, present black bodies as ones capable of thinking. You know, mm -hmm. like I went to public school on the north side of St. Louis, which is, you know, where I'm from. Mm -hmm. And if you go to like, you know, any public school system in the inner city, and you pick up a history book or you take, you know, your civics class, whether it be in middle school or high school, it's, it's very interesting to think about that in those history books that black people are kind of located as people who are notorious for using their bodies, but like not their minds. And I just found that to be so perplexing, you know, mm -hmm. as a student that, you know, throughout the kind of narrative of, you know, the American revolution or the civil rights movement, the black bodies are somehow participating in war, they're, you know, protesting, they're causing, you know, like there was Tulsa, Oklahoma riots, you know, against like white supremacists who bombed that city. And it seems as though there were no conversations around uh, what black thinkers were doing at the time, you know, and that's something that wasn't you know, openly taught or talked about, you know what yeah. I mean? And I just find that to be just frankly problematic, you know, because it didn't offer me a vocabulary to understand, you know, my own experiences. Mm -hmm. right? Like I was taught that in order for me to um, strive or to be successful, then I had to put my body at stake, right? Like your body is the thing that you have to put up in order for you to have some kind of yeah. upper ability. And that's, you know, it's, it's interesting when you think about, you know, that being the frame in which you're asked to operate in and no wonder why, in the black community, we have so many athletes, you know? Right, right. It's, it's incredibly polarizing. Mm -hmm. That's, that's wild. Um, I, I love learning about this perspective. Um, 
And and I feel as though so many history books, they just, you know, they they discount the black experience in general yeah. um, it, 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 because it's written by, you know, white male aristocracy, you know, and, and that's the perspective that's being put out into the world. Um, and it's so problematic in in that bias. Yeah. Um, it, yeah, go on. <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, and, and, you know, it's interesting because. I think about the kind of literary canon that was introduced to me in middle school, right? Mm -hmm. You had a lot of the great writers and, you know, poets like Emily Dickinson or Charles Dickens or, um, God, what is the writer? He did The Great Gatsby. Um, I'm forgetting his name, but- uh, I'm blanking yeah. on it right now too. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'm forgetting his name. But it's interesting where you weren't introduced to like, you know, the black literary canon in any public school. You know, like Toni Morrison is not required reading. Bell Hooks is not required reading. Zora Neale Hurston is not required reading. You know, and I think my only real saving grace was that I had a sister named Deanna, or I have a sister named Deanna who was an act like a voracious reader. Mm -hmm. And she was an extreme introvert, didn't have a whole lot of friends. And so I would I had this habit of breaking into like my sister's room because I was the youngest kid and I didn't like locks. And so I would stumble in her room just find stacks of books, you know, just like around and like scumdring through them and whatever. Mm -hmm. And one of the books that she had was Their Eyes Were Watching God by Zora Neale Hurston. And that was like one of my first introductions to like a black writer mm -hmm. right, that told a story about black life in the, you know, in the South. And I never felt understood in such a way that I could engage with these characters or, you know, participate with them. And I visualize, you know, my family as those characters, right? As people who are also um, from a Southern background. And that opened up a word, world for me. And I'm like, okay, dope. Well, I got to find more writers like this, you know? Yeah. So I don't know. I think that this idea of like, I had a very healthy curiosity and just scouring bookshelves. And I would do this thing that would really annoy my mom when we lived in um, North County. <laughs> And we didn't have an AC. So during the summer, I would like wake up at 6 a.m. and I would walk down uh, Chambers Boulevard to the Lewis and, Clark, Lewis and Clark Library and spend like hours on end there simply because they had air conditioning. Oh, and, wow. Yeah, it was just because I would leave because the sun wasn't really up, you know? Mm -hmm. And so I could walk in the middle of the night, you know, in early mornings and it was cool outside. And by the time I got to the library, you know, maybe 30 minutes before they opened. And through there, you know, I just, spent a lot of time just trying to stay cool. And I engaged with a lot of books there that passed hours. So how much time do you spend reading nowadays? You know, a lot less, to be <laughs> completely honest. You know, uh, things have gotten a bit demanding if I'm speaking, you know, freely and honestly with you. Yeah. <laughs> and so, you know, I, I try to read, I'm in the process um, right now of reading Marcus Aurelius's um, The Meditations, which are- I actually started reading that as well. Woohoo! 2020 and 2021. Yeah. Going through some shit, you know, and what's great about that book, I didn't know this, but that was the same book that Nelson Mandela had read when he was in prison, you know. Oh, I didn't know that either. Yeah. And so, you know, I was struggling with my mental health, dealing with a lot of depression and anxiety around my studio practice. And um, my brother passed away uh, three months ago, actually. Oh, so sorry and, to hear that. You know, uh, thank you. And I think that, you know, when we experience moments of like extreme trauma or hardship or in moments of mourning, it's very easy to become comfortable in your grief, you know, mm -hmm. especially if you're struggling with your depression quite regularly. And 
in our society, there's not much room for you to like, you know, pause and reconcile like what has happened to your body mentally, spiritually, emotionally. And that has been the, the state for most black people. You know, you mm -hmm. oftentimes don't have time to just worry about the fact that, you know, your cousin got shot, you know, it's like, yeah, on to the next thing, you know, you're either going to retaliate or we're going to figure out something, you know, move from like the neighborhood. And these are the kind of solutions that black people are trying to find, you know, it's one of like mobility, movement, safety, but never one of stillness, you know, and I want to make sure I'm opening that up as a possibility for my community, mm. you know, and I think that when some people, you know, are curious about my idea of talking about, you know, the black body is one capable of rest. And there's this assumption that maybe there's a kind of like laziness that's attached to that. And I always found so like, I just have to correct them, you know, that no, that's not laziness, that is exhaustion. Yeah. You're like, that's what you have to also recognize. Like that distinction is very important that these bodies have been active perpetually for like centuries, mm -hmm. you know? And so after a while, you know, you need to like kind of take a step back, breathe and kind of reconsider or renegotiate your mentality and your outlook or, or perspective on what has happened to you, you know, in this world, in this life. And I don't know, I just think that's always something that is very well overlooked, you know, it's swept under the carpet before anything else. It definitely is. I, I agree with that completely. Um, so with, with all that being said, what is your actual process to, to begin a painting? Mm -hmm. And so I really love drawing, man. Like drawing is my bread and butter. I went to um, a community college called Florissant Valley mm -hmm. in um, Ferguson. And, you know, I, when I, I knew I could draw, you know, like, you know, like many millennial kids, I was like, you know, trying to draw characters I saw, you know, on Saturday morning cartoons. But you didn't really know that you could apply it to anything practical, right? And when I went to this community college, it was, it was one, it blew my mind, um, and this will tie into my process, is that that community college was the first nationally accredited community college for art in our country. Oh, wow. It's in Ferguson, of all places, right? But those professors are, were very huge on drawing, you know, like mm -hmm. very big on drawing and they opened my mind up to thinking critically about how drawing can be used to plan something out, to um, craft something, how the materials of drawing can be used to understand, you know, the human anatomy, the body, the mind. And I still maintain that as um, a cornerstone for my practice. And so whether I'm listening to um, a Nipsey Hussle record, or if I'm listening to a lecture, I listen to a lot of lectures in my studio, I'm drawing things out. You know, I have a book open next to me, whether it be a Noah Davis book, Elise U. Scavage book, um, any kind of book that's there, I'm, I'm drawing something, you know, and I have an idea of what I want to do. You know, I'm not, it's not all figured out, but I'll sketch it. Now, prior to making these large paintings, I made a lot of large drawings and I used to make a ton of drawings before I even started making the large drawings. Like the preliminary process was huge, like a lot of preparatory sketches. Mm -hmm. I, I've loosened up quite a bit on that now. So and more so just sketching out a general idea of like, the geometry of my painting composition. And that's really important in terms of um, my appreciation for art history and my appreciation for um, painting. And I think that too often those things are jettisoned in or in, for the sake of just making an image. Mm. Right? But the geometry of your painting and the composition and how things are uh, oriented in one place to another is such a big part of how we appreciate a painting, right? Now, most viewers may not understand why they like something immediately. 
Right. So, you know, if you spend a prolonged period with that word, you start to understand how things are placed in relationship to one another. And that seems to be what my priorities are whenever I'm planning something out for my work. And from there on out, I mean, I go and I'll talk to a friend, hey, will you like, will you, will you model this pose for me? <laughs> They're like, Dominic, it's a linear drawing. <laughs> like, what do you, like you, you, what do you want me to do with this? And we you know we kind of play around with it, try out different poses. And my friends have been quite generous with their time. And so, and it's great because a lot of the people in my paintings are actually, you know, in the same studio building as me. So I'll like knock on the door, I'll text them, hey, will you try out this idea for me? Then I'll come in and I'll figure out how I can author that image well, you know? So, so the models that you're choosing, they're people you know, they're people that are surrounding you. Yeah, they're, they're close friends of mine, people I have some kind of relationship with. And that brawls, um, one out of like a practical issue when I was like, you know, like, yeah, I had bodies around me, whereas the drawings I made prior to you, yeah, I was completely alone. And so I was often this, you know, the subject mm -hmm. for the painting, I was the model. But, you know, upon further um, reflection, I do think it's important to like mark times in your life. You know, like I do think that, I think of my work as a timeline of my life, you know, mm -hmm. that in a way the characters in my paintings, you know, you get to grow up with them, you know, as, as I age and I live, you know, there's, collectors who have paintings of myself with long hair when I have my locks and there's painting you know there's paintings of me without them you know mm -hmm. and, and it's in that way it's that that character in that painting comes to life you know they're not long they're no longer some individual that's you know solidified within like that painting frame and they don't have a life outside of that mm -hmm. you know and I think it's kind of cool to like kind of compare notes as collectors like oh my god like I got Kevin when he was 25 and now he's like 30 you know and you know maybe he gained some weight maybe he didn't <laughs> and you know, I think I was talking to a curator about this show called As Told by Ginger, which I'm sure a lot of people aren't familiar with. But As Told by Ginger was a, um, a cartoon on Nickelodeon that I saw as a kid growing mm -hmm. up. And it's relevant to the story because As Told by Ginger was one of the um, television shows where in which the protagonist, her name's Ginger, actually grew up with the demographic of kids who was watching that show. And so when I was in middle school, she was also in middle school. When I went to high school, she also went to high school. And I remember thinking that is so odd that this character is like, has, literally has a life of their own. Like they, it's yeah. a age story, you know, told on screen through animation, you know? And I think coming of age stories are incredibly powerful, you know, figuring out what, what happens to someone, you know, on their journey that brought them to where they are, you know, mm -hmm. and what that looked like. And it offers you a perspective to kind of recontextualize, like, where you are and who you are and what you were doing, who you were with, you know, and you may have a fresher outlook on your experience. True, true. Um, so as you're making these paintings, what is the atmosphere in the studio? You started to hit on it a little bit, but yeah. uh, you have podcasts, music, books are open. What, what's, what's that atmosphere going? Oh man, I, I am obsessed with music. I am so obsessed with me. I think it's, well, I think it's one of the most powerful art forms and so I'm either blasting, um, I've been listening to a lot of Nipsey Hussle recently because he just, he has like that street energy, you know, about getting into like the studio and just being motivated and working and really just working hard. You know, like I love that motivation in his, in his music. You know, it's like just be holistically committed to like your craft and your work and your study and your scholarship, you know, and then I'll also listen to something like Miles Davis or D'Angelo's album, you know, The Black Messiah, which is a bit unorthodox from his previous R&B and soul music, you know, but 
I follow my artists, especially music artists quite a bit, but I'll also have um, lecture series um, playing in my studios quite often, just so I can listen to them. Mm-hmm. Because I just love how artists think. I love how they speak. I love the perspectives on their experiences and how they relate to their artwork. Um, of course, I listen to a lot of Carrie James Marshall's lectures in my studio. I mean, I think he's just a brilliant man. Um, Lorna Simpson, she gives, you know, great, she's, I haven't listened to any of her lectures, but I listen to her in conversations um, with curators and other artists such as um, Thelma Golden. I saw her um, speak with her. Glenn Ligon is a beautiful speaker as well. And so I love having these voices, you know, in, in my space because in a way I'm measuring myself to them. Right, right. You know? I, I love to hear that. <laughs> yeah, man. I, I, I really, those artists will never know in the ways that they have impacted me. Mm. You know, I, I haven't met all of them, but their words are what I return to. You know, like their words guide me through so much of my confusion. And that's kind of the role that literature has performed for me. Mm. You know, for the longest time, I really didn't understand my experiences growing up. I was very perplexed by them, you know, because I couldn't te- contextualize anything. I didn't ho- have a vocabulary for um, what, what, what it was that was happening to me. And my mother oftentimes shielded me from, shielded me from quite a few things, you know? And that is what a lot of, you know, parents in impoverished neighborhoods try to do. Yeah. The problem with that was, is that she taught me how to survive, right? And she taught me how to be strong and how to be resourceful. And that I think um, allowed me to um, be a bit more sensitive to um, my environment. Right, how I navigated my environment, how to find things, you know, how to find ways to keep working, how to be very crafty, right? But I also had a deep interest in using my mind. And my professors at community college saw that, you know, and so they would introduce me to like different books or different writers, like, hey, you should check this thing out, you should read this. Because what they taught me was that, you know, the art field was a competitive field as well. Mm-hmm. You know, and I'm, I'm not good at sports, you know, I like working out, but I can't shoot a damn three, three pointer. I can't shoot a, I can't shoot a free shot. It's bad, bro. It's, it's really, really <laughs> bad. But I knew that I could use my mind, right? Mm-hmm. And in a competitive field like art, you know, where I ha- like your imagination is your greatest tool. And your, the way you utilize your imagination can dictate the levels of success that you may have. And that to me is like, I can participate then. You know, yeah. I knew I could participate in that moment. You know, I remember uh, my professor, Eric Schultes, was, he introduced me to Felix Gonzalez Torres. Mm. He was just a phenomenal conceptual artist, just a phenomenal artist. And he had um, a piece called um, Faded Lovers, which were these two clocks that, you know, were syn- synchronized at the same time, same battery life. And they, you know, at face, face value, you're like, okay, they're just two clocks. But over time, the clocks would fall out of sync with one another. Mm-hmm. And I remember thinking, oh my God, I didn't know that was an option, right? And right, I started right. thinking about my mortality. I started thinking about death. I started thinking about how time functions differently between myself and another individual, right? Mm-hmm. And that opened up my entire realm of possibilities. And so, you know, sometimes I'll enter into my space and I'll think like, what would Felix do? You know, like how yeah. would Felix author this? You know, what would Felix Gonzalez Torres do? What would Franz Klein do? Robert, what mm. would Robert Motherwell do? Or someone like Joan Mitchell, who I think is just a fearless painter. Yeah. But also you have, you know, the softer side of things, like someone like Agnes Martin, who's very invested in poetry and the poetics of art, you know, the poetics of a line. Mm-hmm. And 
all of those things synthesized to give me a foundation to understand how you utilize your mind in the world of art, you know, and what your options can be. And I just never had that before. Yeah. Um, so getting into some of your work now, um, I'd like to talk about the wash paintings that you have. And I, I specifically want to talk to this kind of veil or barrier that's kind of on the foreground before you kind of get to enter into this subject matter. Um, how did that come about and, and what's, what's going on in those works? <laughs> so the wash paintings, I, um, I started one um, during my thesis at Yale and it was just a painting I was really trying to figure out. I was reading The Souls of Black Folks um, at the time by W.B. Du Bois. And in that book, Du Bois um, outlines this um, idea called the veil. Mm. And he said that, you know, those who live within the veil, and he's talking about black people, excuse me. And what Du Bois, what the veil is, is, is this barrier, right? In which we understand, um, excuse me, in which we understand that myself as a black person, I understand that someone has a preconceived notion about my identity and my body, mm. right? I understand that and yet I choose not to subscribe to their assumptions. But the fact that they have in a hard time seeing the legibility of who I am, it's because of you know white supremacy, whiteness, patriarchy, right? And these things are deeply rooted into like their psyche that yeah. they can no longer see me outside of the terms of their own assumptions, their own stereotypes, their own biases, mm -hmm. right? But the veil is not, you can't see it. You know, you experience it, right? It's a metaphor. Yeah. You know, it's a socio-political phenomenon. And so for me, um, when I started thinking about, okay, through the lens, lens of magical realism, what would the veil look like if you can see it? You know, it initially started out as, um, for me, a raindrop. Because I was thinking about how rain, when you're seeing a rainstorm, everything in front of you is somehow illegible because it's over your eyes, right? And that to me was like a great way of um, thinking about, okay, well, maybe I can create this raindrop-like motif and cover it up, like that's the veil. Mm -hmm. But then I stumbled upon Morris Lewis. And Morris Lewis is the man. He had a series of paintings called Veil Paintings. And I saw them and they, first they were meant to just be seen as kind of, you know, washes of color. Yeah. You know, as a combination between, you know, modernist painting, but also the expressionist. But you have some of the spiritual tones of like, you know, the expressionist movement in those works, but also some of the hard edge and softness that the modernists kind of appreciated as well. And I was like, oh my God, like he's also negotiating the veil, you know, but he negotiated through these washes of color and paint. And there was a softness and a richness to him that I felt like I could fall into, you know, and I was started thinking I wanted my works to capture that kind of feeling, you know? And so I started just being bold and I wanted to just see what a wash of paint will look like on the bodies within an image that I was producing, you know? And through that process, I, the wash paintings came to be, you know? And so the wash paintings are meant to respond in some ways to Morris Lewis's veil paintings, but also to the idea of the veil located in um, the souls of black folks by Du Bois. And, you know, let me say something else about that, if it's okay, I know yeah. I can be long-winded. No, you're good, you're good, keep going. You know, but it's important because I think that the veil, in a way, is probably one of the most surreal aspects of Black life. You know, I am a huge follower of um, surrealism and I, I love it, I love it very much. And it is because the Black experience is so surreal. 
you know, it's a very surreal experience. And oftentimes, you know, you don't understand what's going on. It is odd. You know, people think about um, the show Atlanta. I'm not sure if you're familiar with it. Are you familiar with Atlanta? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think that is one, one of the most well-written and brilliant shows on television because there's, um, it locates what an experience is growing up in, you know, the hoods of Atlanta today. You know, mm-hmm. most people don't actually know outside of TV what that environment looks like. And there was a scene in the show, um, in one of the episodes in which the protagonist named Earn is on, a, he rides the bus, he takes public transportation. And there was a guy who got on the bus with a, like, a dog, but you don't see the dog, but he starts making a Nutella sandwich and he gives words of wisdom to Earn, who was, ha- who was having a moment where he was down on his luck, feeling a bit misanthropic. And the guy tries to force him to eat this Nutella sandwich and just gets off the bus after Earn says no and disappears into like the woods and shit. Now, to a viewer watching this show, they would oftentimes write it off as like, oh, it's fantasy, right? That's just meant to be there for com- comedic effect. But to me, as someone who comes from those environments, who has ridden buses at like two o'clock in the morning, shit like that happens. Like, yeah. you would not believe it, but those things are actually so common. And that's what that show really takes care of, you know? And I think about Andre Breton quite a bit, who was, he's kind of like the godfather of Surrealists. He was a um, French writer and theorist um, in the 1920s, which is where the Surrealist movement um, was born. You know, we were just coming off of a world war and Andre Breton talked about this idea that, you know, the realm of possibility within your imagination and what you can conceive as possible would collapse, right? Like that is what surrealism is, you know? And it's interesting that like this, you know, the idea of surrealism was born after, you know, a world war, a moment of intense tragedy globally, right? Mm -hmm. Which is not, you know, dissimilar kind of, towards the tragedies that we're currently ex- experiencing now, you know? And so in a way we'll seek again, new modes of like thinking and attempts to make sense out of the precariousness of this climate that we're all negotiating now. Right, right. And that's what Breton and the other surrealists were also trying to do, you know? So building on, on that idea, um, how has it been for you working in these times of COVID? You know, not a whole lot has changed for me. You know, I really just want to make sure I keep my practice alive as as much as I can. And so when COVID hit, I mean, my concerns were, you know, very similar to yours, you know, very similar to all of ours. You know, am I going to be okay? Is my family going to be safe? You know, um, how am I going to get to the studio? We have a stay-at-home order. Is it wise? But, you know, I really just want to make something and nothing is going to curtail me from doing that. And so I'm okay with, you know, being alone, working in the studio and just making sure I can keep my hands on things. You know, I have to make sure I'm like still working and grasping things. And I would say one thing that real, that really did stick with me through COVID is the kind of um, unanimous perspective or outlook that people have seemed to have um, with their lives, you know, in, in the wake of COVID, you know, do you have an identity outside of your job? Right, what right. we do if things fall apart? You know, I have not met a single person who has not reconsidered what it was that they were building prior to COVID taking that shit away from them, mm-hmm. you know? And that is something that you have to consider and reconcile because right now, COVID, like to live under this pandemic has been a surreal time for all of us, right? 
like it subverted what we understood to be possible, right, you know, right. in the day and age. And I think that has been something that I've, my, myself included, I've been trying to be very conscientious of is that, you know, who am I, what am I doing? What am I building? What, you know, what effect has COVID had on my mental health, on my anxiety? You know, what, how has it affected my relationships with my friends romantically? And I think that being very conscious and deliberate in those thoughts has been um, what I've been trying to use COVID and this pandemic for the most. You know, I don't want to have a superficial understanding of this pandemic's impact on me moving forward. Mm -hmm. yeah. You know, post-pandemic, I need to make sure I'm aware of just how radically I've been changed. Because I feel it, and I'm sure a lot of people feel it yeah. as well, you know. But then again, this might just be a conversation for my therapist. So. <laughs> <laughs> well, isn't that what all artists do? We we talk to ourselves and have those conversations before even seeing the therapist, or am I projecting a little bit? But <laughs> uh, so one thing I really want to ask you, um, when I first encountered your work, I was just out of grad school and I was working as an art handler in Philly, and it was um, a couple pieces from a private collector, and I noticed there were a bunch of these kind of oval shapes or almost marquee kind of pointed ovals that that appeared in your work a lot of times and that actually drew me to following you on Instagram but that's a whole nother story um so I was looking at this work and and I, I just want to know what are these this reoccurring motif what is, what is that about in the work oh for me it was meant to be a raindrop okay was, all right yeah it was funny because when I was making that um, motif at in grad school my studio I remember uh, <laughs> You know, because the way that motif is made is that I'll mask out the painting, you know, with tape, with, you know, typically a yellow scotch tape or whatever, or yellow masking tape, I'm sorry. And um, I would cut out with an X-Acto knife, like directly onto the painting surface and fill the negative space with paint. But when you're trying to make a raindrop because, you know, it's rain, it's, you know, like a little line. And of course, there's a symbol for the raindrop that I'm sure felt, you know, you're familiar with. Mm -hmm. Fred Wilson he uses the raindrop quite a bit. And I just didn't want, like, that ready available motif in my work yeah you know like i didn't want like that raindrop or symbol in my work and so i created like you know what looks like to be a seed right yeah. and you know that for me that was a raindrop it was quick to make i was like yo i can i can get this as opposed to just trying to draw a very particular oval on mm -hmm. top of that but what was great about those shapes was that when i was in critiques they were read as all kinds of things like you know seeds raindrops vaginas uh-huh you know how artists are and so yeah. <laughs> but that's what that shape is and that's where it was move you know that shape in its later incarnations on you know more recent works it doesn't cover the entire picture plane as much anymore you know it's actually much more used as like um, an aesthetic device or i have an aesthetic sensibility for that role of that mm -hmm. shape you know whether it's alluding to the you know the veil and that's and my approach and, you know, my thinking around that isn't really all that dissimilar to the kind of logic that a lot of um, African-Americans share as like, a, you know, collectively, you know, we try to reconnect with different parts of like, you know, our history and our traditions. And that's what, you know, some people call Afrocentricity. And so you'll see me in my work, like brawl, you know, maybe a rope type motif, which will follow um, in um, later work here, or the raindrop motif will be you know, referential to a time in my life that I'm trying to reconnect to as well, you know. Um, in the in the series of work where uh, you, you title it Primary Magic, um, there are several figures that they, they become these silhouettes and they're almost glowing. 
Um, what what what's happening there? So those silhouettes are all me. They're all, they're all me. I, I put myself in my paintings. Um, I mean, you know, I'm not a narcissist, but you know, I I am very much invested in um, art history. And in some um, art historical paintings, I remember going on um, a tour at SLAM, which is the St. Louis Art Museum. Mm-hmm. And um, the tour guide was expressing to us that in certain paintings, in like, say it was like a, a merchant scene, right? And there's like maybe 30 figures in that painting. The subject in the painting who is looking directly at the viewer is the artist who made that painting, you know? And I just found that to be so badass. I was like, yo, these artists are incredible. I was just so, you know, charmed by the way they, you know, they made their work and just like the kind of humor in that, you know? And I started thinking about how can I reference that in my work? And so the negative figures, the figures that are spirits or, um, you know, silhouettes, you know, that don't really have a lot of information as to what they are doing outside of their, you know, their body action, the way their bodies are positioned. They're meant to be me, you know, like they're, the, the person with the least amount of information is actually the individual who made that painting, you know? And so that's how they're meant yeah. to perform. But also this idea of like, you know, ancestorship or connecting with like, you know, the spiritual or the sublime, you know, they can, I like to think they can be read in a number of ways, but I would say on the onset, it was about this idea that those individuals who, those bodies that are simply containers, you know, for ideas, for, you know, imagination you know those bodies are the like you know those are my bodies i love that i love that um and i love your um just kind of knowledge of art history and how that just seeps into the work um so much so that uh kind of your more recent paintings they're they're based off of uh joseph albert's homage to the square correct yeah they are um so one of one of my questions with that is um one, how did that come about? And then two, um, are you choosing kind of the same color structures that he has happening in those kind of transitions of the squares? Or are you just going with the structure of the square inside the square? So the um, homage to the square, Joseph Abers, you know, like going to yell and all, like they kind of shove him down your, like down your throat. <laughs> like they really do, they do, man. They shove, they shove him down your throat and like all the faculty members love him. I know, um, when I was a first year, I had a studio visit with uh, Robert Storer. And Robert Storer was, you know, he was looking at my drawings and in the drawings I had, they were these flying red and green spirits that were um, borrowed from Greek mythology called psychopomps, right? Mm-hmm. And those red and green spirits, I made them red and green because of, they were complementary colors, right? Yeah. You know, and anyway, they uh, were meant to function purely like that. You know, the colors choices were meant to be, you know, Eh, you know, complimentary at best, but there was no real um, kind of critical thinking beyond those colors outside of that. And Robert Storer, you know, Bob, he got on me about it. He was like, you know, you need to start thinking critically about those colors. He said, think about Joseph Alvarez, right? Like that, you know, that silo, that um, spirit could be one color and then it could be this and they could change with each other. And I was like, I'm not listening to you. Like, what do you know? Like, this is outdated. Like, this is outdated. I'm not listening to that. Like, I don't want to do Joseph Alvarez work. Like, I don't want, I don't, I'm not worried about that. And so, um, Fast forward to 2020, you know, it's always in the back of my head because I can be quite receptive to criticism. I want to make sure that's um, that's very much uh, out there. <laughs> but I keep uh, my I keep a thread with a lot of my professors from community college where I blow their phones up, spamming them or whatever, with tons of images. You know, asking yeah. people to think about this or that. But um, anyway, 
you know, 2020 happened and I was like, okay, like, you know, I was like reflecting on my time at Yale and Joseph Albers. And so I decided to just kind of like read about his work and like look at them. And I became fascinated with this idea that Joseph Albers saw color exclusively as perception. Mm-hmm. You know, I came across a quote by Joseph Albers in which he said, color always deceives. And I thought that was so frankly gangster. I was like, that's <laughs> like, that's cool as hell, man. Like who would have thought? And I became curious about that, you know, because if I am a practitioner and I am a painter and I'm someone who is invested in our history, it is my job to know this information. You know, there's just quite frankly, certain things you can't not not know, you know, and I was saying to myself, like, you know, dismissing history, right? Like that's something that I should not, no artist should ever do. Right. I don't care how different that artist's practice is from yours. You know, they're a part of the art historical canon and they have done something right. And, you know, to Joseph Albert's credit, he is a genius. You know, and so I was thinking about Joseph Albert's work and his ideas around color as perception. And I was reading The Interactions of Color, which is um, one of his books. And I started thinking about how this understanding that if you showed one color one way and you oriented it next to another, it could change, right? And I thought there was a beautiful symmetry between, you know, that idea when it, as it res- pertains to color and how that can also relate to your identity. You know, for example, I am African-American, right? In the context, you know, within the structure of America, right? And that comes with it a certain amount of like, you know, racism, problematics, because our cultural paradigms outline, you know, the way someone engages with my um, cultural identity. Mm -hmm. And, you know, if you were to go to Africa, you know, my blackness would mean something different, right? So you have your identity and the context in which you find it influence, you know, the way in which the collective society will engage, you know, that, that body or that person or that character, you know? And for me, I wanted to really explore that in my work because that's something that I think a lot of African-Americans deal with, you know, we're too American for, you know, to go back to our continent, but we're also black and too African for American, right? And that's something that many artists who are black have negotiated, such as um, Angie Decker, Akinili Crosby. She talks about the post-colonial idea of the third space, right? And the third space happens. We have two um, opposing identities, you know, being Nigerian and then, you know, coming to the States. And then, you know, also by way of um, the UK as well, what happens in the middle? Like, where is that gray area? And how do you forge a new identity there, right? And so when I started making the Elmas Square work, you know, the, the works, the After Albert series, I wanted to have that conversation, you know, and each of the paintings I made in that series, they do borrow from Joseph Albert's paintings that actually do exist. And so I'll print them out and then I'll go to Home Depot and like rummage through the little card stock and then I'll like sit on my desk and I'll cut them out on little pieces of paper. I keep, like really I keep squares that I'll put the colors on top of and just to see what they're doing. Mm-hmm. And I'll take those colors with me to like the painting and I try to get them as accurate as I can but I also loosen up a bit because they're figurative works, right? They're figurative works with a kind of landscape or a scene or a space, you know, depicted in the picture plane. And so there's going to be discrepancies in there. And in that moment, I have to make sure I use my knowledge of color and color theory mm-hmm. to, you know, push that idea forward. You know, how do you bring it here and compel interest in a modernist aesthetic in a contemporary landscape, you know? Um, so... I know this might be a really hard question for you just because, you know, your, your art historical knowledge is so 
vast and it's extremely impressive. And I, I could just sit here and listen to you talk for hours about all of this. Um, but if there is one piece of art in the world that you have to see before you die, what is it and why? You know, um, that is, that's, that's an interesting question. And God, I, I hesitate to ask her because I don't want to come off as a dick. And so uh, for whoever's listening, I apologize. From, I swear it's a bad habit. But, um, you know, there isn't really um, an artwork per se in the world I would want to see before I die. Mostly because, you know, I really am invested and deeply in love with the world of art. Like it has changed my life and it's, it's I owe it quite a bit. You know, I owe it so much. And so I want to get out there and see as much of it as I can. Yeah. You know, when I was in Italy, I went to the Uffizi. As you know, I saw Michelangelo's David. I, I had to see all these things because that is the lineage I come from. Yeah. You know, like of, in art historically speaking, you know, mm -hmm. like I want to acknowledge and pay, you know, homage to those who have um, allowed me to stand on their shoulders, whether it be through their words and books that I have read or through, you know, their paintings, right? I go to like a Mirandi or a Mondrian. I'm like, oh my God, like look at the way this guy cleans out all these edges and it's all in oil. You know, like I'll see these paintings, like, damn, like, how do you get your edges so clean? Or you look at, um, I think it's Mirandi with the, the smaller paintings that were like super intimate and super like close together. And there's despondency in those works. And I mind you, I've seen these works, so I've engaged with them. But before I die, man, I hope to die exhausted. Like, that's why <laughs> I want to die exhausted as hell. I want to be so tired because. I mean, I want to see everything that I can get my hands on or that my eyes will allow me to um, take in all of that information. I, I want to see the hanging gardens in Babylon. I want to see Machu Picchu. You know, I want to see the pyramids. You know, I want to see Niagara Falls. I want to see the Grand Canyon. And part of my, you know, not only is it part of my intellectual interest to see these things, but also a human interest to see them. And quite frankly, I have a responsibility to see as much as I can because my mother never did. You mm -hmm. know, like through me seeing these things and you know, really making the most out of my life. She also sees these things, right? Like she never really did leave the country. And now if I have the ability to go out there and see as much as I can to learn as much as possible, I like to think that, um, you know, she is also engaging and seeing those things as well, you know? Because, yeah, yeah I mean, I think we all have a, quite frankly, we all have a responsibility to our planet, to our lives, you know? We can't do a disservice to ourselves by not seeing as much. You should be completely exhausted you know, at the end of your life. And I hope that we all are and that you can leave this place with grace, knowing that you've done everything that you could, right? And we all know there's gonna be so many more things that you will want to do or participate in before, you know, then you'll have time to get to, and that's okay. Mm -hmm. But just be, you know, ferociously hungry about it, be deeply curious and just go after it. Now, um, if you've had one piece of advice that you would like to pass on or just one piece of advice in general that you would like to pass on to an up and coming kind of uh, group of creatives, what would be that piece of advice? Hmm. I would say, uh, keep working. You know, it's really that simple. Just show up. Like that's all you do. Like your first and main priority is to show up and to, you know, quite frankly, take care of your mind. You know, it's your job, quite frankly, to leave, to keep your imagination healthy, right? Mm -hmm. Like you have got to keep your imagination healthy, you know, keep your mind healthy, pick up things, you know, ask people questions that you would have never ordinarily asked, be okay with saying, I don't know. And I would say um, the last 
big part of advice that I would give them, you know, and this is advice that I take on myself, and these are words from Carrie James Marshall, is that success is perseverance. It's gonna be hard, man, more than anything else, just don't give up on yourself, don't give up on your friends, don't give up on your team, just keep working. Like more than anything else, so many people tap out, you know, but yeah. if you committed to this and you are in love with it, then it is a disservice to yourself to give up. If you are committed, then you have to go. You have got to persevere. Dominic, I think that is the perfect place to kind of end this. So if people are looking for your work, where might they be able to find it? Oh, in their hearts. I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> I'm trying to live in y'all hearts, man. <laughs> All jokes. I would say um, through the Lucci Gallery in Italy, in Torino. Uh, it'll be there, but also I'm um, at Robert's Projects in LA. I'm doing art fairs here and there. And so you'll, you'll just have to catch me. I'll be where you guys are, you know, wherever you, if you want to find my work, you know, I like to make sure I make myself available, you know, as much as possible. And so, yeah, like I'm out here, man. You'll see the work. Great, great. Uh, Dominic, I really enjoyed this conversation. Like I said before, I could listen to you for hours, but we got to cut this off. Um, so it was a pleasure having you on the show. Um, to all our viewers out there, make sure you check out his work and uh, go and find him online or in the actual galleries when they start to open up. Um, and I will see you all next week. All right. See you later.